Okay, I'm finished. What have you been doing in there all day? Redesigning all U.S. currency. It's just so wrong right now, you know? Nothing but pictures of white men, and a lot of them are slaveholders and Indian fighters. So who have you replaced them with? All right, are you ready? On the penny, Peggy from Mad Men. Ray Charles is on the nickel. FDR gets a stay on the dime. Billie Jean King is on the quarter. 50 cents is 50 cent, because you know, it's so easy to remember. Washington and Lincoln get to keep the one and the five, but the $10 bill is Elvis, and the 20 is Muhammad Ali. $50 is Eleanor Roosevelt. The 100 has to be somebody named Benjamin, because it's not fair to P. Diddy to change it. But I'm open. Franklin, Harrison, Bratt, Spock, that's a conversation. On the 500, Lando Calrissian, and on the 1,000 is Steve Jobs, but... Stop. What? What's wrong? You can't have a whole nation's currency be based just on people you like. Oh, it's not just me. I called Walter Isaacson, and I asked two guys at the bar at Firebox. That's not very scientific. I was coming to that. I'm putting Einstein on the $10,000 bill. You know who's on it now? Salmon P. Chase. Who's that? SpongeBob's next-door neighbor? Some of your choices aren't even real people. And politicians are? Today on The Nose, Arthur Chu takes on Andrew Jackson. Paul Vance will no longer be the face of the state police. And Anna Marie Cox comes out as a Christian. And now he bought up all the limited edition Whoopi Goldberg quarters. Colin McEnroe. All right. Yes, that pretty well summarizes what we're going to do today in our second segment. We will be talking about the displacement of Paul Vance. You know, uh, those of us in the press, all we ever do, all I ever do anyway, is complain, complain about how things are being done, complain about my interactions with the government officials. And so Paul uh, Paul Vance has been doing this incredibly difficult job as state police spokesman since 1999. And nobody ever complains about him because he's done such a great job. And certainly during the time of Sandy Hook, he just put on a clinic about how to, to do this kind of an operation. But for some reason or other, they're all done with them. So anyway, we'll talk to uh, the president of the Connecticut State Police Union about that. And then Anna Marie Cox, a not unsnarky at times commentator who founded the not unsnarky site Wonkat, um, surprised a lot of people in the Daily Beast by saying that she's a very, I guess it's sort of a Daily Beast day, isn't it? Uh, by saying that she's a, a devout Christian uh, and uh, offered a very, very sincere, prof- sounding reading anyway. I guess I'm not really uh, licensed to pronounce on people's sincerity, profession of faith. But we're going to begin but with Arthur Chu. We're so excited to have Arthur Chu back. You know him from Jeopardy, where he's a champion uh, many times over. Uh, he's also a culture blogger. He wrote The Mass Murderer on your $20 bill for Friday's Daily Beast. Uh, he joins us now from studios in Cleveland. Uh, welcome back to the show, Arthur Chu. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So let's uh, begin by, we should say that uh, Andrew Jackson's legacy is uh, a a controversial one, a complex one, an often contested one. Uh, Getting ready for today's show, I noted that uh, it's now almost, it's not standard curriculum, but it's it's now a commonplace of American history curriculum in both high school and college, I think, to put on a mock trial of Andrew Jackson to have Mm -hmm. each side kind of argue his case uh, back and forth. I assume uh, if uh, you were allowed to choose your side, you'd be on the negative. You'd be in favor of convicting Andrew Jackson of something. What's that something? Well, there's um, you know there's disobeying orders and and conquering you know what is now the state of Florida without orders um, during the Seminole Wars. There's um, putting the city of New Orleans under martial law. You know there is ignoring the uh, Supreme Court to go ahead with Indian removal 
um, which was an act of ethnic cleansing, arguably an act of genocide. Um, you know, so responsible for thousands of deaths. There was uh, creating the um, the panic of 1837 by um, by ending the Second Bank of the United States, which also led to arguably thousands of deaths. Um, you know, and there's just you know generally being. Uh, not very nice guy. I mean, he personally, um, he survived, what, three duels. Mm-hmm. He he personally killed three people. And um, in his last and most famous duel, you know, he he was in a situation where he could have satisfied honor by not shooting the guy, but shot to kill anyway, and was actually widely reviled by people in his own community for doing that. So he was a you know, a, a colorful figure is how historians like to put it. You know, it sort and, of balances out the well. First of all, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect, but um, <laughs> yeah, it kind of balances out the dualist uh, ratio on our currency. You got Alexander Hamilton lost a duel, right? Um, right. So, um, but you know, in some seriousness, anyway, the nobody's perfect argument could be mustered at, at least to say that a person particularly a person from that period, is probably not going to get out of there without a little bit of blood on his hands or at least uh, some slavery on his hands. Uh, you, sure. you, can, you can make a, a pretty compelling case for Thomas Jefferson uh, being a hypocrite uh, and an abuser of power uh, and a whole bunch of stuff. So, so why single out Jackson? Is Jackson really that much worse than, say, other slaveholders were? Than, is, is, and is it the, the Native American uh, displacement that, that makes him so especially bad? Well, it's see, and here's the thing: like Jefferson was a fan of Jackson, so it's a it's a complicated issue. But see, um, it's not um, for me. Jackson is not. It's not an despite this, also this kind of thing. It's not that his legacy is balanced by bad things he did, as you would say with other, um, you know, famous presidents. It's that all of the things he did were bad. In fact, if we even just like. If we go look at the like pro Jackson side, and it's actually pretty hard to find someone who will defend Jackson. You know, any any specific one of Jackson's actions. Like, can you defend the dismantlement of the Bank of the United States only if you're a crazy gold bug? Only if you're only if you you're against central banking, which in this modern age is you know a fringe position to hold. Can you defend the Trail of Tears only if you're a racist? You know, um, but. But the the thing that people say is positive is this idea of Jacksonian democracy. The mm-hmm. reason that people like Andrew Jackson, the reason they liked him back then, what he stood for was the idea, you know, of the common man achieving power, of an election that was for everyone, not just for educated property owners, et cetera, et cetera. And in my view, you know, the form of democracy, the Jack, you know, Jacksonian democracy is a bad thing. Like all of these negatives in American culture now, they go directly back to that. Um, saying that it didn't matter whether or not Jackson, you know, had orders to conquer the state of Florida. He went ahead and did it, you know, and seeing that as a positive thing, this masculine, macho, you know, cowboy diplomacy. Well, that's that's continues to be a negative thing that gets celebrated in American culture. The sense of American entitlement, the the reason for Indian removal was that Americans, white Americans, white American men needed more land. And what right did the Indians have to keep the land away from them? You know, there's just this fact that Americans deserve this or that and screw other countries, other peoples, because we're Americans, it's our land. You know, that entitlement is a huge part of American self-identity and policy today. And, and all of these things are extremely negative, in my view. Even the, 
you know, I am not a fan of Jeffersonian democracy in the sense that I'm not a fan of, you know, the the country being run by aristocratic slaveholders. But I'm definitely also not a fan of the idea that, you know, any random American who wants something deserves to get what they want because they're an American, damn it. You know, and that's that's Jacksonian democracy. Like, it's it's almost... Um, it's almost too perfect a metaphor that on the eve of Jackson's inaugurations, he, uh, eve of Jackson's inauguration, his first one, he had a bunch of his drunken supporters raid the White House and trash it, and you know, just strip it of valuables and drink all the booze and eat all the food, and he inaugurated the spoil system, just like giving jobs away in the civil service to people because they supported his campaign, and and that was seen as a positive thing too. This is access of a, for ordinary Americans. To democracy, but it's not access based on merit. It's not access based on education or productivity. It's access based on just like you're an American, you supported the right party, so you get what you. You know, there's no reason for anyone to support Jackson, uh, except that these things are still toxic parts of how we see ourselves as a country. You know, but people do support Jackson, or at least you know. I mean, just to go back to the first thing that you said, um, it may be very difficult for anybody to defend any individual um, act of Jackson's. But really, he's actually, you could argue that he's experienced kind of a, a golden period here in terms of biography writing. Um, John Meacham, as you know, uh, for American Lion, won the Pulitzer Prize. That's not a deeply, deeply critical biography. It certainly, you know, goes cuts both ways. David S. Reynolds, same same time, roughly same time, also writing a, a Jackson biography that at least doesn't take the approach that you you're taking right now, that there is virtually nothing to praise about this man. And, you know, so is there is there a difference between how we collectively remember a president as a whole as opposed to how somebody like you uh, looks at a president part by part by part by part? Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's not just part by part by part by part. I mean, I look at him as a whole and I say this is, you know, machismo. This is toxic masculinity. This is entitlement. Um, this is this is everything that's bad about white male America. And I might be, you know, I might in that sense be a fringe commentator myself, but I don't think I'm alone here in saying like, like, yeah, I, I actually agree. Jackson symbolizes a lot of American culture, um, a lot of what we think of as the American spirit. And I think that's bad. I think that American spirit's a bad thing. I think that's even today, that's what led us into these disastrous wars. Um, you know, this pugnaciousness, the sense that there's an American honor to defend, that that one of the core themes of Jackson's life is defending his honor and defending his wife's honor, mm-hmm. regardless of the consequences of spilling blood for honor. That um, one of the core themes of Jackson's life is this hatred of elites and elitism. And that's what led us to deregulation. And that's what led us to, you know, um, in Jackson's era, wildcat banking. In our era, you know, repealing Glass-Steagall and and letting investment banks run run wild. But this idea that, you know, this this deep distrust of eggheads and professors telling us what to do, and this belief that you know free enterprise um, left unchecked will will lead us into greater prosperity. All of these things. This like, you know, you're not better than me. You can't tell me what to do. You can't besmirch my honor. These very American traits, there are many Americans who still admire them or who, who like take a quote unquote balanced view of them. And I'm just my point of view is it's bad. You know, this 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 definition of manhood of masculinity is bad. It's it's responsible for most of the bad things that have happened to us as a country. The um, just, uh, you know, an argument 
might be made about some of this stuff uh, that he was kind of the man for the moment. I mean, first of all, you're already alluding to the fact that he's symbolic of a certain thing. He's the first president born west of the Appalachians, and, and he really does depart in significant ways from, from what might be described as a pretty elitist, elitist vision of leadership, like who who was really eligible to run the country. Well, uh, if you look at the first six guys, you know, I mean, they're for the, for the most part cut from a certain kind of bolt of cloth, and he's cut from a radically different one. So that may be some of the symbolism as well. But then there's also... The this expansion, this westward expansion. And by the way, I'm much more intrigued by your argument than I am by the one I'm making. I'm just making this one for the sake of argument. But th- that, that expansion is going to happen, uh, and and there's probably no reining it in. A- and there's uh, and, and that Indians, Native Americans are going to be displaced, uh, and it, it's often going to be much worse than displacement. All those things are probably inevitable tides of history. He's the guy who's kind of perched there. Um, it could be argued that he'd had uh, quite a bit of contact with, with Native Americans, a lot of it obviously uh, in the course of heated battle. But but not always, and that maybe maybe he was sort of the right guy for that ro- moment in terms of democratizing the U.S., uh, taking it uh, a, a little bit uh, away from the Eastern elites, and, and also a guy who he's, he's overseeing a westward expansion uh, and a kind of American imperial, imperialism that, I mean, there, there wasn't going to be a, a, different ver- a different chapter written right there in the early 19th century, was there? Well, this is actually this is something I'm kind of interested in. I haven't read as deeply as I'd like into it, but you know, I, I'm always I always kind of bristle when I hear arguments about inevitability. Um, even if it is inevitable, that doesn't mean you can't blame the person who actually did it. Lots of things happened that were probably pretty likely to happen. Hard to imagine them happening another way, and still, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I'm going I'm to Godwin myself, but it's like if, if Adolf Hitler weren't born, someone else, you know, Germany was a, a powder keg, but that doesn't mean Adolf Hitler wasn't a bad guy. But um, uh, the westward expansion, I mean, yes, I know what Jackson's argument was. Oh, if we just leave the Indians there, but westward expansion is inevitable, then, you know, there will be a disorderly displacement of the Indians instead of an orderly displacement that will lead to more bloodshed, et cetera, et cetera. The, the actual Trail of Tears was not that orderly anyway um it's 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 the argument that's made by every uh engineer of an ethnic cleansing today and and yesterday so if you're going to say that's okay you you have to say the same thing about say the ethnic cleansing in kosovo you know you have to say the same thing about um about the conflict that's happening uh, right now in um in the ukraine that oh these these are just things that are inevitable because one ethnicity is going to move into one place and so it would be better if they had the guns to, you know, make it orderly instead of disorderly. I don't know. The The thing is that I would actually argue um, when we say, like, there is this tendency to sort of, you know, the winners write the history books. And there's a tendency to, to, like, say, to only see the American project through one set of eyes. And that's the Jacksonian set of eyes to say, like, the what the Democratic Party stood for back then was what America stood for. Um, to the point where the opposition party, the Whigs, get tarred as, you know, oh, they didn't stand for anything. They were just people who didn't like Andrew Jackson. And that's not really true um, from my perspective, anyway, from what I've read, that there was an alternate vision for how America could have developed, and the Whigs were had a platform about it. In fact, um, William Henry Harrison, his famous speech that caused him to, you know, get pneumonia and die, that was a long speech because he really did want to lay out his, you know, American program for how America should develop. And they're very they're two opposed views of what it means for America to develop. The Jacksonian view is that America develops by just getting more land, more stuff, you know, more resources, expansion. 
Um, and the Whig project was, in, you know, the, this phrase was actually very common in politics at the time, internal improvements, that was more important than getting more land was improving the land that we had. Um, was, you know, they built a lot of canals. They were the canal builders, mm-hmm. building canals, building railroads, um, developing urban industries. Um, and there was a philosophical difference that the Whigs, you know, linked um, the development of the land to the development of people. So John Quincy Adams, who was, you know, Jackson's nemesis, mm-hmm. believed in personal self-improvement. He was a big believer in education. He wrote books about, you know, moral development and exercises to put yourself through to improve yourself, you know, and, and elevating the the American spirit. And that was like, absolutely in opposition. Jackson's point of view was like, Americans don't need improving. Americans just need more stuff. We're fine the way we are. You know, we don't need to make ourselves better or change our way of life. What we need is more land and more money and more stuff. And I I actually do see that as, and I'm cribbing this from another writer, (laughs) from Adam Kadri, who's a blogger I really like, but we've, we've, um, we've had this conflict in American culture where there's one side that says, you know, America can become greater by becoming better. We can become better than we are. We can change our culture. We can change our way of life. We can improve ourselves. And the other side that says, no, screw you. Don't tell me I'm not good enough. Don't tell me I need to improve. What I need is the resources to, you know, pursue what I'm already doing. And and this is a very, you know, the Sarah Palin populism we have today, How, right? Like, her her fan base is all about like this anger at professors, this anger at and you know environmentalists, this anger at regulators. How dare you tell me that my life might actually be better if I just use less gasoline, if I change my lifestyle, if we change the way we build our cities so we use less energy? No, no, that's wrong. You know, the that's anti-American. The American thing to do is to keep doing what we're doing and just drill, you know, drill baby drill. If we don't have enough oil to maintain our lifestyle the way it is right now. We need more oil. Don't tell us to change our lifestyle. And to me, that's, you know, I'm a Whig, if you want to put it like that. I, I, I see, like, the American project as can we be better? Can we become better people? Can we change the way we live to be more efficient and sustainable and more humane? And if we need more stuff than we have to continue living the way we do, that's a problem with the way we live. It's not a mandate to go out and grab more stuff. And there is even today a very, very strong like cultural push in the other direction, that any criticism of the way we do things is, is anti-patriotic and any attempt to like stem the tide of us grabbing more and more stuff to feed this unsustainable way we live is, you know, is anti-American. All right. That's, that's a very thorough takedown of Andrew Jackson and tying him to Sarah Palin is uh, especially <laughs> ingenious. So, Arthur Chu, uh, if I gave you control over this moment and over the currency, sort of go back to this fundamental idea. Obviously, currency is just symbolic. On the other hand, it is sort of when I read your article, one of my thoughts was, wow, we're having fights all over the country right now. There's one going on uh, uh, 20 minutes from where I sit, not even that, in West Hartford uh, about uh, removing Native American mascots from sports teams. Um, it's an argument worth having, a conversation worth having. But it's sort of amazing that we're having those arguments, and Andrew Jackson, uh, given who he was, is still there on the $20 bill. So um, if I gave you the power to reform things, one easy way to do this would be to take Jackson off and put John Quincy Adams on, uh, that mm-hmm. you can stay in the same time period, and you know he is probably a more moral, uh, at least uh, to and appealing to some of us. Guy, is that what you do, or who, who do you think, or do you just want to, as our introduction suggested, revise the entire currency system? 
I mean, I I like that many EU countries don't say, oh, it has to be a head of state, you know, a king or queen or a prime minister, that it's great thinkers, great writers are as much a part of who we are as political leaders. You know, mm-hmm. if anything, I'd say the fact that we don't have kings or queens means we should even less be focused on presidents as, you know, symbolic Americans. But yeah, um, like the article that I wrote, you know, half tongue in cheek said, hey, the people who want to put Reagan on there instead of Jackson, I'm fine with that. I like Reagan. I mean, I hate Reagan, but I like Reagan better than Jackson. If nothing else, that would start a conversation. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I hate the sort of like a historical the last bad president like George W. Bush is the worst president ever. He's not even close to the worst president ever. You only say that if you don't remember anything, you know, before like Nixon. But um, yeah, uh, the thing is, Quincy Adams was not a very successful president. He was a one-termer, and he was opposed. He was much more successful later on in his speaker life than when he house. was president, yeah. a Speaker of the House. Yeah, um, but you know, I mean, like, if I had my druthers, like Martin Luther King would be on at least one piece of our currency. But if you want to pick someone from that time period, you could pick, say, Emerson. And I think it's, it'd be impossible, even for the most like gung-ho conservative, to say like, "Oh, Emerson is not." A famous American and not a famous enough American, an iconic enough American. He's a very iconic American, and he was extremely outspoken at the time against um, against Jackson and later Van Buren's policies. His letter to Van Buren's an, a classic of American political writing, and you know um, it, it, that kind of thing really belies the whole "he's a creature of his time" thing. Even in his time, there were people who absolutely hated, deplore Jackson for the same reasons that I'm saying now. And so, yeah, Emerson would be one of my choices. All right. Know? Might have to be Margaret Fuller. I mean, we're screaming for diversity <laughs> here. But uh, great idea. Arthur Chu, always so great to talk to you. This article appeared uh, in the Daily Beast. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm sure we'll cross paths very soon again. We're closely following your work. We're going to take a break right now, come back with a conversation about the state police. All right, we're back. Um, so as, as I said at the beginning of the show, as a newspaper reporter and columnist and then as a radio host and commentator, all I ever do is complain. And all I ever do uh, in particular is complain about uh, state government and their unwillingness to cooperate with me or do what I think they should be doing. Uh, and uh, a frequent target uh, or a frequent source of abrasion in a relationship like that is going to be the so-called public information officer uh, for any particular state agency. Uh, and so all I ever do is uh, yell at them and complain about them. Uh, and a really a notable exception uh, has been Lieutenant Paul Vance. It's always pretty hard to find anything to complain about uh, in terms of the way that Lieutenant Paul Vance has handled his job. Uh, and he's been handling that job since 19, 1999. Um, these uh, uh, spokespeople tend to serve at the pleasure of their commission. But Paul Vance has just lived through an awful – I don't know if anybody's tried to count them all up, but there's a, a lot of them. Uh, he's lived through a lot of commissioners uh, of the Department of Public, Public Safety. And so uh, it was a little bit of a, an astonishment for all of us who follow this kind of thing to find out that Paul Vance was being transferred, uh, apparently not with his full cooperation, to something else, to uh, a job running a traffic division. Uh, and that, especially in light of the fact that 
no matter what you've ever thought about Paul Vance or whether you've ever thought about Paul Vance at all, if you saw him during the incredibly complicated and um, very touchy situation of the Newtown shootings in which every day brought up fresh waves of grief and emotion uh, and issues about privacy versus the public's need to know certain things, um, he pretty much put on a clinic about how you do that. I mean, the next person who handles something like that, just go watch some tapes of Paul Vance. So um, as I say, uh, that's a lot of praise coming from a journalist to a public information officer. So we're trying to figure out uh, or learn a little bit more about um, what happened here. Uh, we actually asked the Department of Public Safety's commissioner, uh, that's uh, Dora Schrero, uh, to join us today. That's not going to happen. We are talking, talking to Andrew Matthews. He's the president of the Connecticut State Police Union. So first of all, welcome to our show. Good afternoon, sir. And, and second of all, you guys did put out um, a statement, or you've made a statement um, based on, on what you know about this, what you're prepared to say about it. And, and in your statement, uh, essentially, you do raise some real questions about why this is happening. What, what troubles you about this? Well, first, I, I, don't, I don't speak on behalf of the Department of Public Safety or the lieutenants and captains that actually put the statement out you're referring to. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons this, the State Police Union, I represent uh, about 1,076 troopers, sergeants, and master sergeants mm-hmm. as their president. And the confusion was the reason we put our own statement out yesterday was because the press is confused that they think the State Police Union is the organization that represents the lieutenants and captains. So we put out a statement saying, one, clarifying that it wasn't our statement. Mm -hmm. Um, Lieutenant Vance is represented by the Lieutenants and Captains Union with CSEA. And um, we actually clarified that we don't have any concerns about the transfer. Oh, so you don't have specific concerns about this transfer? No, we rarely address internal state police transfers publicly and had no intention of doing it until the press continued to call me as the president saying that I put out a statement and it wasn't me that put it out. So we were clarifying that for the trooper sergeants and master sergeants. You know, we have a great deal of respect for the colonel, the commissioner, the light colonel, and Paul Vance himself. I mean, he's, we have a high regard for him. and We appreciate what he's done for this agency over the 16 years that he's been assigned to PIO. He's acted always in a professional manner. He's been helpful and supportive to the communities we serve. And he's been informative and transparent to the media. Um, but, you know, we, we don't believe that this, is, this isn't something for our members. Transfers are frequent. I think the public doesn't understand a paramilitary organization. Often, um, when you're promoted, uh, no one stays in any position that I know of for 16 years. So it was a rare exception. I think part of that was because it was the public information office and you build relationships with the media. Um, but... You know, typically when well, I think the thing that members, the public doesn't understand is in our agency, we used to have approximately 47 lieutenants and captains. We currently have 24 lieutenants and 11 captains for 36 total. Um, and 28 lieutenant positions, four of them which are vacant. So which, what's occurring in our agency is that there are vacancies that need to be filled. And, you know, if the commissioner and the colonel decide that, they want to transfer someone, the recourse for us as a union, when our members are dis- you know, transferred or uh, as a result of something that's non-disciplinary, um, if we feel that it's a violation of our contract, we file a grievance. We never, we typically, we, unless it's a matter of public concern, such as you know, dispatch consolidation when the public was at risk, our union stood up 
went to the press, went to the public, and told them this is a matter of your concern, and we think that it needs to be addressed. We typically don't go out to the press about transfers within the agency because it's not our we we're not it's not our position to question um, where our members are assigned unless it constitutes discipline and they haven't been disciplined. And Paul Vance is not being disciplined, as far as I know. All right. Well, listen, thanks very much for your input into that. That's uh, Andrew Matthews. Joining us now is Bill Baldwin. He is a president of the union that does uh, represent lieutenants and would be representing uh, Lieutenant Paul Vance. Uh, Welcome to our show, sir. Hi. Good afternoon. How are you? Good. So um, you are the union that that does um, maintain anyway that that Lieutenant Vance has done his job very well uh, and that it's a little bit surprising to see him, particularly kind of later in his career when he's established such a presence here uh, over the course of, of, uh, what, about 16 years now, uh, to see him being transferred to something else. What what more can you say about this? Uh, Are you, in fact, troubled about this? Yeah, we are troubled by this. Um, You know, and... uh to the extent of what um, Andy Matthews has stated about transfer, he, he's right. The commissioner, we, we serve at the will of the commissioner. We serve at the will of our colonels uh, to uh, to be in different assignments uh, throughout our agency. The issue isn't isn't the fact that he was transferred. It was the, in the way in which he was transferred. Uh, Lieutenant Vance, who has served under several governors, under several commissioners, uh, the commissioner didn't have the decency to call her in his office explained to him that she was going in a different direction, that she that his services were no longer lead, needed. Uh, Lieutenant Vance was just happened to be called into our colonel's office and was just told, hey, by the way, you're being transferred. And for a man who's got over 40 years in our agency, a man who is the most senior, in, senior trooper in our department, a man who has served the governors and the commissioners, including Commissioner Schreiro, he served her very well for his time there. Um, I don't. We didn't. We don't believe that this was the way that this should have been handled. Um, Lieutenant Vance is. Uh, um, he, he's a stand-up guy. Uh, he's the type of guy that uh, he's, he's accepted his new assignment uh, with no with dignity and with no with no problems. Uh, he's a trooper. He's going to do what he's told. But it's just in the way. I think. I think it's just in the way that he was um, uh, transferred. And and the lieutenants and the captains. We're the command staff of the state police. We are the ones that implement and move the commissioner's policies forward with the rank-and-file troopers. And on another note, I received numerous phone calls from Andy Matthews' bargaining unit from his members who were deeply troubled and deeply concerned with this transfer. So to say, I mean, I think I know Andy's speaking on behalf of the entire union, but you can be assured that I received numerous calls from numerous members of his union who were very concerned with his transfer and were not happy with the way that this was done and are not happy with Lieutenant Vance uh, being, uh, being transferred. And as, as, you, as you stated, as you opened this up, Lieutenant Vance is unique in what he does and how he uh, um, uh, describes crime scenes, how he keeps the public at large. Everywhere I go, people are upset and very concerned about uh, the fact that he was transferred, and uh, we are definitely troubled by this. We asked the commissioner to reconsider, and at this point, uh, she decided not to. And again, we respect her decisions. I mean, it's her agency to move forward, but again, it's just the way in which uh, this was done. Um, I don't want to kick a, a hornet's nest if it's not there, and it probably isn't. But, you know, when you looked at some of the language that was being used at the time that this was announced, I mean, terms like fresh start or, or new direction, whatever was said there, when you're talking about a, a 62-year-old state employee, 
uh, can raise, raise questions of, of ageism, of age discrimination. Obviously, he's being transferred to a position of high responsibility. So I, I, I assume that's not a concern that you have right now. But I, I wanted to bring it up anyway. He is 62. Yeah, I don't think it, you know, again, I don't, I, 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 I seriously doubt that uh, age has anything to do with, with the transfer. I think, uh, again, um, it, uh, Lieutenant Vance's um, comments and his, the way that he handles the media up until this point has been nothing but professional and very articulate. Um, I, again, he's going to, he's going to a unit with uh, significant responsibility, but I think um, the responsibility that he has in the CIO far supersedes uh, that at this point, simply because uh, it requires an individual who has the ability to communicate to the public and to the uh, to our citizens uh, to keep them uh, informed and keep them calm in crises and in emergencies. And as you mentioned at the at the opening of your show, uh, the Sandy Hook thing is a perfect example of that. Not to mention the numerous other events that he has uh, uh, given out the information on. It, it, I just would add to that to, to say that. Uh, you know, after a while, this this is a job that requires a certain kind of familiar, familiarity with the people that you're dealing with, or at least you do it better, the better that you know the world, and also the better the, that the world of, of journalism trusts you. And I, I don't know of anybody, I mean, maybe there's somebody out there, I don't know of any of my fellow reporters or columnists or hosts or anything who ever called Paul Vance and A, thought they weren't getting as straight a story as he was able to give them, or B, that he wasn't prepared to go try to find out what was really happening. Um, and, and so I guess that I think you're right, that he's such a public face for the department. It's not like transferring somebody else. I mean, I'm sure that uh, Andy Matthews is right. People get transferred all the time. It's just that the, it's, and it's not just the press. It's that the public has gotten very used to this guy. So you'd almost think there have to be a pretty compelling reason to move him along. I'm assuming it means that Commissioner Schreiro ha- wants to have her own person, someone who's uniquely her own person. But that seems a little paradoxical considering how many uh, commissioners of public safety that have preceded her that this man has been able to serve and, and serve apparently uh, in a way that pleased them. No, I, I agree exactly with what you're saying, Colin. But you know, you know, one of the one of the issues that we talked about is that Paul Vance has got, like I said earlier, he's got over 40 years in the agency, the most senior trooper. We know that the day is coming where Lieutenant Vance is going to hang up uh, his his hat and he's going to say, "Listen, it's time for me to retire. It's time for me to move on." Uh, we know that's coming. That day is going to come, and there is going to be a transition. But that's the thing: is that there was no transition. There is no transition to a new PIO officer. Uh, the the, the the, PI, the PIO is so important when it comes to keeping the public informed that our argument is is that keep Lieutenant Vance in his position, determine as the commissioner, all right, who is your next PIO person going to be? Who is your replacement? And let that person work with Lieutenant Vance uh, for you know, an extended period of time because this isn't something you learn overnight. This isn't a knack that you learn uh, you know, in a week or two. Lieutenant Vance needs to... Uh, train somebody to take his position. And I, quite frankly, don't think we have anybody to do this uh, in our agency at this point. And I think it's really important. I know there have been several people that have been in and out of PIO, um, but again, I think that if the commissioner wants to assign a new PIO individual, put somebody in there, let them work under Lieutenant Vance, let them get comfortable with dealing with the media, let them get comfortable with being able to communicate and put forward information to the public that we're, that they that they need uh, to keep informed, and then Lieutenant Vance can transition over to the traffic squad. 
The well, transfer will be the transfer will be coming out probably. I believe from what I was told, it's going to be coming out Friday. They'll be transferred in two weeks, and boom, that he's he's done. Hmm. So I that, that, again, we're, it's concerning. Um, it, this is the only. Uh, as this is the only issue we have. It's just the way in which it was done. Well, after this interview, I'm probably not going to be the new guy. I don't think I'll get the job. <laughs> but uh, thanks very much. <laughs> you could probably apply for it if you want. <laughs> All right. It's not too late. All right. Thanks very much, Bill Baldwin, for joining us, uh, president of the union representing uh, state police lieutenants. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with a very different I think it's a different kind of story, the story of Anna Marie Cox, founder of Wonkat, political columnist, and now self-avowed Christian. This is the Today's Scramble is produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Julia Pistel and Sydney Loro. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Alexander Hamilton. For show pages, articles, and the Faith Middleton Show staff's bootleg videos of Mr. Carson and Mrs. Hughes' wedding night, go to WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, our salute to teeth. And now... Back to Colin. Yeah, tomorrow on the show, we'll be talking to uh, June Thomas, one of our uh, favorite people to talk to, about her own personal journey, her quest from northern British teeth to American teeth and all the sociological and, uh, uh, and personal subtexts that go along with that. Uh, also, we'll be talking to the leading expert in the world about the tooth fairy. So anyway, that's tomorrow's show. Uh, joining us now is uh, Anna Marie Cox. Uh, I've been following her career for a long time since she uh, was one of the, the founder, really, of Wonkette, I think. Uh, and she's now a contributor to The Daily Beast. Uh, she's also the author of Dog Days. Um, and over the weekend, she created, you know, a mild stir uh, on the Internet uh, with an essay in which she, as she put it, came out uh, as a Christian. So first of all, welcome to the show. It's good to be here, virtually and, here. Virtually there. Thank you. And then um, tell us, first of all, why you, you, you're the one who used the term coming out, to, to come out as a Christian. Why, why pick well, that particular locution? You know, I shouldn't have. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I am, you know, one of the things that sort of kept me sort of questioning around about the term Christian and, and considering myself a Christian was my advocacy for LGTB rights. And I think I should have been a little more sensitive about using that language. I've upset some people with it. Um, because, indeed, one of my points in the essay is that coming out as a Christian is actually not a very, not necessarily a brave thing to do. You know, um, it is one of the most <laughs> common religions in the world. Most Americans identify as Christian. There's nothing particularly rebellious or dangerous about doing it unless you live in a country where Christians are legitimately, you know, oppressed, and, and the United States is not one of them. So I kind of wish I hadn't used that term. Um, I think what I was trying to do, the reason that term came to mind was that I was trying to express the hesitancy I had and the sense of um, insecurity I had about identifying myself as a Christian sort of in the environment that we're in, that I'm in 
right now, I should say. Well, I think also one uses that term when uh, one is about to reveal something about oneself that people who might encounter you every day just don't know about you, right? I mean, in other words, people who encounter you as consumers of your work or maybe people who work or who you encounter as as colleagues within the world of journalism, people who maybe think they kind of know Anna Marie Cox uh, don't know this very basic and important thing about you. I mean, that's another reason. Maybe come out is not because it's just loaded up with LGBT baggage. Maybe that was the wrong particular phrase. But the sentiment of it was, was a little bit that, right? This was something yeah. that you just hadn't shared with a lot of people. Exactly. And I, I should say I've received a lot of really generous notes from friends of mine who are activists in that community, you know, some of them joshing me a little bit about it and others just telling me that they understood exactly why I used that term, that, um, you know, one friend who himself identifies as Christian said he felt that it was completely appropriate, that he has the same kinds of anxiety about it. Um and it is, it is some, in the sense, it is, it is something, that phrase does carry with it sort of the um, connotation of vulnerability uh, that I did feel in, in putting, putting this piece of information out there about myself, that I was sharing something that felt really scary and personal. Even if it's not ultimately a very, uh, even if ultimately Christians d- do op- occupy a pretty privileged place in our society, sharing that about myself felt really vulnerable. Well, let's talk about some of those vulnerabilities. So, so one of them might be, and I, I can remember you know, one of my earliest uh, experiences covering government and politics. I was listening to, to a debate, and this would have been about 1979 or 80, about assisted suicide in a state legislature. And the people who were opposed to, no, you know what? It wasn't even assisted suicide. It was living wills. Living wills were not even, or, you know, or advanced directives were not even uh, covered by statute uh, here in Connecticut at that point. So it was a bill to allow people to have living wills or advanced directives, and there was a group that was trying to beat this down on on, relig- on a religious basis, saying, you know, this is you know, this is man taking the place of God. This is irreligious. This is sacrilege. Right. This is, and then the group that was trying to advance the battle on the other side, which was pretty much composed of progressive legislators or left of center legislators, was sort of saying, well, we really ought to leave religion out of this conversation, uh, you know, and, and invoking separation of church and state and all that kind of thing. And I found myself wondering why none of them felt comfortable at least introducing religion, or since religion had already been introduced, coming back with something like saying, well, maybe we're supplanting God's will when we keep somebody on a ventilator for six months, you know? Maybe it's, maybe God has already called that person home, and it's really man intervening, and, and, and an advanced directive or something like that would, would actually reconcile man with God. But no liberal was ever, ever comfortable making that argument. And I sense that might be some of your ambivalence, too, that, that the minute you make a religion religious argument as a liberal, you've broken some kind of covenant that you've had with some of your peers. It's true, because I think, you know, because one principle that I still hold with is that, um, you know, religion is a highly personal choice, and that it, it is something that we have to be careful about introducing into the public sphere, and that um, one thing I do believe is, you know, is that you know, God gave us free will, and that's actually when you talk about, you know, um, uh, DNRs, you know, in, in living wills, what I think about is the free will that is expressed by the person who has made that choice, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I think there are some theological arguments. There are usually theological arguments on both sides of almost any coin, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> so sometimes it's in, in how you decide at a policy is probably, uh, and if you're a devout person, your religion certainly has an influence on, on your place 
where where you come down. But I, I don't know how useful it is to turn to turn a policy debate into a theological debate. Um, you know, most of the time, true. So. Although on matters of economic justice, it's pretty hard not to say, think that Jesus <laughs> takes the side of the poor, you know. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, like I said, my belief, you know, informs my indefinitely. I mean, though it's interesting, you know, like I've been a liberal for a long time. Um, and and it, one of the reasons I had trouble sort of identifying as a Christian is that I, I bought into the right um, ownership mm-hmm. of, of that theology, you know, like I thought, you know, well, I am pro-choice. I am pro-LGTB. Um, I, I am uh, for decriminalization of, of a lot of drugs. Like maybe that means I'm not a Christian. Maybe they're right. I, 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 and one of the reasons I wrote the piece was that I felt that no, it's not really their fault that, that, I, that I took as long as I did to get where I t- to where I am. Mm-hmm. But it's also true as with the discussion about um, the president's spirituality or religion, um, those discussions did keep me from, from getting to where I am now. And my whole understanding of the you know, Christian project is you're supposed to actually sort of get people closer to God and not, not you know, keep them away. So we're talking that's on, one of the reasons I wrote the piece. We're talking to Honor Marie Cox, who wrote about this uh, in uh, The Daily Beast. Um, uh, let me ask you about another thing that I, I think uh, I sense in your piece that you may have felt vulnerable about, and that is, uh, I mean, obviously, if you look at the the scope of, of human history, or or at least the story of Western civilization, um, uh, it, for most of that time, it's pretty hard to find an intellectual uh, who's not a believer, who's not a Christian. Uh, but you know, in in 2015, there may be a certain segment of your peers, uh, other people in journalism, who almost regard Christian belief and and, and your description of yourself uh, every day, getting down on your knees to pray to Jesus, that uh, as something kind of naive, right? That there's a kind of sense of, wow, who, 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 who does that who is also like the rest of us? The rest of us don't do that. And that there's, some, there's almost a childlike naivete that they might ascribe to that. Was that one of your concerns in, in making this decision? You know, I actually have to say that it, it wasn't because in a weird way, because I think I've been, you know, I've been a journalist for a long time mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've had my, you know, sort of on paper intellect affirmed um, outwardly a lot. Like, I know I'm a smart person, mm-hmm. you know, like I might say dumb things and do dumb things, but I, I've, I have carry with me a lot of the credentials that our society tells us mean I'm a smart person. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I'm pretty secure in that. So when someone tells me, and this is happening, or this happened since I wrote the piece, like when someone tells me that, you know, oh, you pray to the sky God or, oh, I gave up my imaginary friends when I was six. Um, I just, it, honestly, that stuff doesn't hurt at all. Like that just makes me feel like, God, why are you like, why are you even bothered by what I have to say? Like that makes me sort of wonder about their securities. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then also like, I think about my mother who, who is, who passed away not too long ago and whose death was a, a, a real, you know, milestone on my own sort of, I hate the phrase faith journey, but I'll use it there. Um, and her hangups about religion and about God had a lot to do with um, growing up in a you know relatively poor uh, southern town and being really smart herself mm-hmm. and feeling a real conflict about that. 
feeling a real conflict about the people around her and about and feeling being made to feel an outcast because she was so smart mm-hmm. and thinking there was something different about her and have, and feeling like that was where she needed, she could not reconcile. I don't know if I'm explaining that quite right, but um, I saw my, that my mother's problems sort of got rooted in a desire to be both. She didn't think you could be both really, really, really smart and believe in God because her understanding of God was formed in this particular culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I saw that for her, and I saw how she struggled with it, and I kind of chose not to make that my fight, if that makes sense. Um, last question. No, no, that does make. I know. I, I totally get what you're saying, and I mean, I actually do think that there is. I've encountered this a lot uh, since moving from commercial radio to public radio. Too that there is. I used to get in trouble on commercial radio for saying anything that people thought was blasphemous or sacrilegious. or And then you get in trouble on public radio for granting any status at all to actual religion and belief. There are people who will email you mm-hmm. and say that imaginary sky god thing to you. So very quickly, we're sort of running out of time. Was there Has there been a response or a type of response that you've gotten in the brief interval of time since this article appeared that has either surprised you or pleased you? or I mean, who have you been hearing from? I got a, I've gotten a few really wonderful um, emails from people telling me, you know what, uh, your article reminded me that I, I'm not, I'm a Christian, and I'm as a Christian, it is not my position to judge others. Um, people telling me that, for instance, they had been uh, engaged in the argument over Obama's, uh, you know, Christianity, whether or not he is, and writing to tell me, you know what, that's I shouldn't have done that, mm-hmm. um, and that's. That's really strong testimony, as they say. Um, and that's if my article had a specific intent, it actually had to do with that that particular issue. I mean, the larger issue is of judging in general, not just Obama, but obviously that is what really got me to write the piece. And it was that argument that really, I mean, I was what happened was I was reading, you know, people talking about that, and I realized that I that I was feeling personally insecure. Mm-hmm. You know, I was feeling personally, oh my God, if if Obama, who went to church all these years <laughs> and who has written that he is a Christian and said prayers and done the National Prayer Breakfast, if he's not a Christian and he's out there performing his faith publicly, yep. then what about me? Anna, we're going to have to go. Anna Marie um, Cox, so great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Okay. We look forward to your next piece about how you also still love America. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Bye. Just like he said. I almost forgot who we should put on the $2 bill. So I'm proud to announce Alex Trebek. Take that, Arthur Chu.